Well, I, I've shared um, a number of times that as a child, my family attended a Presbyterian church, grew up in, and spent a number of time there. I remember lovingly or going to the, the summer camps, Camp, uh, camp Donegal is where we went. I don't actually know where that was. I was a kid where they drove me to, but uh, I, I love those week-long camps. And this church, uh, you know, they, they were, uh, I, I wouldn't say I understood the gospel there. I think they taught it. Uh, but I don't know that I caught it, if you will. Um, but I do remember growing up there, they would affirm the truth of the Trinity. But even in, in themselves, they used to jest that it was more like talking about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You know, th- there was this like acknowledgement or admission that the Holy Spirit, right, well, one-third of the Trinity was often absent from any of their discussion or teaching. And, and I found that this has a tendency to be somewhat true in a number of our churches in the modern age. I think that's because there's a lot of misunderstanding as to the nature, as to the purposes of the Holy Spirit. You know, when it, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, there, there's kind of two paths that I've seen churches take. And I'm, I'm going to give you the extremes. Of course, there's, it's a spectrum, so there's going to be all kinds of people all over, over the place in this. But many mainline traditions, like my Presbyterian upbringing, they kind of subtly ignore the Holy Spirit. He, he, he's name-dropped every now and then, but really what follows is a very shallow understanding that's a little more than that. Now, on the other hand, you have a number of denominations that, like, they are all about the Holy Spirit. They focus so exclusively on the Holy Spirit, but oftentimes it becomes very pragmatic and boils down to a pursuit of the gifts that he provides. And so even in traditions that focus pretty exhaustively on the Holy Spirit, it is, it is possible to miss out on the day-by-day presence of the gift giver and merely have a focus on desiring the gifts as these, these tokens, if you will. And those tokens are important because they give us assurance that God is with us. So the statement this morning, or this morning, we're going to be looking, as we continue looking at the Apostles' Creed, we're beginning with the third paragraph, and it opens with the statement, we believe in the Holy Spirit. But this statement itself should not be seen in isolation. In fact, I forgot to to kind of call it from uh, what follows on the list when we read it together. So stop after you say Holy Spirit. Don't keep going. Don't read ahead. Um, but it shouldn't be it shouldn't be seen in isolation right? that we say we, even though this morning we're going to say we believe in the Holy Spirit full stop that's, that's not how it is it's an introductory statement in the creed that describes what follows a few months ago I quoted I think it was J.I. Packer and he described the persons of the Trinity and he said the Father plans the Son procures gets it for us and the Spirit applies our salvation. You know, the last several weeks we've been looking at the elements of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, which has won our salvation. Now we are turning to the final portions of the creed, which display the recreating work of the Holy Spirit and bringing these truths to our lives. Right, the remainder of the creed focuses on the church, a new community that is wrought by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit speaks of forgiveness, a new relationship with the Father that the Spirit channels in us. Resurrection, 
a new experience that we are prepared for by the power of the Spirit. Eternal life, right? The culmination of the Holy Spirit's recreating work where the entire cosmos is restored. So this morning, I confess, there's a whole lot that could be said about the Holy Spirit. We're just going to be scratching the surface of what it means to affirm a belief in the Holy Spirit. As we continue, I want to say just a few brief words on who is the Spirit and then explain a little bit, what does the Spirit do in our lives? And then we'll close with some applications, some ways to think about this and take-homes for us. So as has been our practice over the last couple of months, let's continue to add these elements to the creed that we know, and let's recite it together uh, out loud in unison. I'll make sure the words are on the screen. So friends, what do you believe? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended to the dead. There we go. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit. So you see, looking ahead, uh, we got Holy Catholic Church. I'll explain what that means next week, but that's for next week, not now. So I hope that, you know, that this is one of these creeds that is state, especially those more mainline, traditional, high liturgy churches, you might uh, recite that every week or once a month. Uh, I know Anglicans have a tendency to do the Nicene Creed, which is uh, a little, a couple centuries after the Apostles' Creed and is a much, much longer, uh, uh, you know, affirmation of who God is. Um, and, you know, I, I love these creeds because they provide such a foundational understanding of what it means to follow God. But the drawback, the problem is, if you're reciting it every week, it can become rote. So my hope in this series was for us to kind of re-energize some life in that, to, to figure out a little bit more of what does that mean, those words that perhaps we grew up saying, or maybe we're encountering them for the first time, and I don't know, maybe from time to time we'll, we'll bring the, the creed back and say it together. All right, so let's look at the, the, the person of the Holy Spirit. I think the first misconception that we have with the Holy Spirit that we need to address is that the Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is an active person, right? He's the third person of the Trinity, equal in power and essence with the Father and the Son. And in many ways, this is a very natural stumbling block for us to have because in the scriptures, we're given a picture of God the Father, right, which is anthropomorphic. Times in, I read last week in Daniel 7 for the Son of Man, and just before that, there's the Ancient of Days, a, a, this visual representation of the Father, this kind of uh, old, you know, wool, white-haired man who is just very, um, he's brilliant, right? He, he gleams like copper, and he's got all these precious stones under his footstool. And while that's a, a metaphor of explaining God, it gives us something concrete to latch onto. Jesus, we see through scripture, took on human flesh, entered into humanity. And so, you know, the Father and the Son are described in ways that are concrete, that give us language that we can understand and, 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 and you know, 
whereas the Holy Spirit is described in Scripture in much more abstract terms. Right, the closest, um, I think, tangible expression we get are these like bird-like, avian descriptors of him. Genesis chapter 1, second verse there. Right, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and without void. And who's there? The Holy Spirit is hovering right, like a bird over these, this chaos that God's about to turn into, shape the universe. We see in Luke 3, when Jesus Christ is baptized, the Holy Spirit descends upon him. How is he described? Like a dove. So we're not given the same kind of personal descriptors that we see in the rest of Scripture for the Father and the Son. And so as a result, it's common for many believers to struggle to acknowledge the personhood of the Holy Spirit. To them, he's little more than an impersonal force. Like, the, you know, I think about the force in the Star Wars universe. Obi-Wan Kenobi explains to young Luke Skywalker, and he says this. He says, the force is what gives a Jedi his power. It's an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds and penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together. That's what, that's what Obi-Wan says. You remove some of that language of the Jedi and maybe some of the pantheism. How many Christians would affirm that statement as if it were describing the Holy Spirit, right? This force that, you know, gives us power that holds the universe together. But the Trinity declares that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all persons of God, of the being of God. The Holy Spirit is described in the New Testament of having human-like characteristics. He can be lied to. He can be grieved by our sin. The Holy Spirit is described as having thoughts. He can give and receive love. Right? All, all of these descriptors, characteristics, describe and you know, don't describe an object or a thing, but personality. So as we seek to define the Holy Spirit, I think it's important for us to acknowledge, to see him as a who and not a what. So maybe a little bit more of what, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? What did he come to do? The arrival of the Holy Spirit was promised by Jesus on the night that he was gathering with his disciples, that night that he was betrayed. And there's a very lengthy section of John where he gives a pretty long exposition about a number of things. He's kind of jumping from topic to topic. Um, I, I, I'm you know, going to confess, I'm going to cherry pick a few verses. Uh, I'm not going to be reading them in context because it, I'm not going to read all three chapters. If you really are interested in that, John chapter 14, 15, and 16 is the place to go. Um, for there, but, uh, but I'm going to be selecting the passages that speak most clearly about the Holy Spirit. So first, John 14, verses 15 through 17, and I'm going to jump to 16. Jesus said this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father to give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And he continues, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to, to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit's kind of assisting the disciples in remembering the things of Jesus, carrying that on. Jesus continues two chapters later in John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. It's good for Jesus to go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world 
concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. It's a reference to, to Satan, the enemy. Now, having said that, I should probably acknowledge, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about ascending and descending, right, in the way, right, heaven is not literally above us, but it is a higher plane of existence, and so that plane of existence has authority over all planes lower. And so we see the enemy uh, as having authority here on earth. Uh, Paul uses the same language in Ephesians, talking about the prince of the power of the air, that there's authority that he has. So it talks, when it talks about the ruler of the world, it's not saying that, well, you know, the enemy is the ruler of the world, not Jesus. No, no Jesus and, and the Father have authority over all. Uh, just want to, it's a little a, a bit of an aside, but want to make sure I clarify myself that this isn't like a, an either or, but um, the authority that the, that the devil has is, well, he's judged, as it says. Um, anyway, in, in these passages, we see that the, the, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to be a helper to us. And, and I think this is probably meant to echo that helpmate language of Adam and Eve. I went when Eve, after Eve was created, he, she was described as a helper for Adam. And what that means is, it doesn't mean that, you know, unfortunately that's been a passage that's been abused way too often. Uh, it doesn't mean that she was just to be like a, a secretary, you know, doing whatever Adam wanted. That's not what it means, right? That language of helper or helpmate that you see in Genesis chapter 3, no, chapter 2, excuse me, that word is t- most typically used of something like reinforcements in a battle, Right, that if that support didn't show up, the battle would be lost. Right? You'd be up the creek or down the creek, I don't know, whatever the expression is. Right? So the helper is meant to serve a crucial role in their journey together. And so here we understand this helper as someone who is assisting us in applying our faith, right? that faith of Christ in our lives, something that is very essential, is crucial to us. Allowing that faith to yield dividends in our lives. Right? Jesus was preparing to leave and acknowledge the sorrow that would come from that. Right? It would be sad for his disciples when he was gone. But in that second pas- passage I read, he reminds them that it's good for him to go away. Right? That something better awaits in the presence of the Holy Spirit. You see, because when Jesus walked in the flesh with them, they were able to be in his presence as long as they shared you know, close proximity to one another. But now, in the absence of Jesus in physical form here on the earth, right, that manifestation of the Holy Spirit in our lives means that there is a permanence to that communion with God. Right? We don't just need to be in a close spatial relationship with Jesus, but God is always with us. We invite the Holy Spirit, as we sang this morning, to, to make himself manifest, make himself known here, even though Jesus isn't physically present. Jesus said in the Great Commission in in, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, he said, uh, at the end of it, he said, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And that promise is realized, not because Jesus is literally sitting on the pew physically next to you, but because the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in us allows that communion to take place. The Holy Spirit's role is to help us grow as disciples of Jesus Christ toward the fulfillment of the calling that Christ has put on our lives. So how does he do that? once again, I think this is kind of like scratching the surface. There's, there's volumes of books that, could, that have been written about this. But I, I want to break this morning, I want to break the Holy Spirit's influence in our lives to two primary functions. 
First, he, uh, he, he is responsible for guiding us along this pathway of personal growth. And secondly, we know, or we ought to know, that we don't do faith alone. The Holy Spirit equips and empowers us to join corporately with others, to join corporately in this partnership with other believers and build the church. So first, how does the Holy Spirit catalyze our spiritual growth? Now, as we walk with Jesus, there are two things that have happened simultaneously when we come to faith in Christ. And the terminology that's often used in Christian circles labels these things as justification and sanctification. Now, justification is that legal declaration of not guilty that God makes on our behalf. Right, we saw this a few weeks ago with the suffering of Christ, that his death provided atonement, and it repaired and restored our relationship with God. And so that means right now, in heaven, as the Father sits on his throne, he views us as his children, and he carries towards us, his disposition towards us is that same pleasure that he views his son, Jesus Christ. So we are right now perfect in God's sight. But at the same time, we are on a journey. We have a trajectory. We grow. Right? We're on a path to grow into what has already been declared true of us. So these kind of sound like contradictory terms, but they're not. Right? We are, you are, already a finished product because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And right now, as you are growing, you are leaning into, growing into that thing that has already been declared true. You're, lear you're learning to become those finished products while you're at the same time a finished product. In the words of Martin Luther, he said, we are simul justice et peccator. And, and loosely translated, that means that we are simultaneously, at the same time, saint and sinner. Right? We are saint, we have been perfected, and we are sinner. We are on that path where we, we haven't, uh, how does Hebrews say it? The author of Hebrews says that, that with one sacrifice, Christ has perfected those who are being made perfect. The presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives uh, helps, assists us in both of those areas. Because sometimes that perfect version of ourselves that the Father sees through Christ might seem far away from us. Right? We, we say we love Jesus, but we've got these vices that continue to draw away our focus from God. I've spoken with countless of people over the years who have doubted their salvation because there's some area of sin. In, in their minds, the presence of the behavior, the temper that they can't get under control, the websites that they just can't stop visiting, the drug or the bottle that they keep going back to for just one more hit, any of those areas of struggle can derail us. Maybe make us think that that our, our salvation has been invalidated, that we're not worthy of it. Or at the very least, sometimes be, those behaviors are like, well, if I'm doing this, maybe it means that that salvation didn't actually stick the first time. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit is in direct remedy to this. Romans 8, 14 to 15, Paul states, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Right? What, what I, the theological nature of what I just shared. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as son, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Okay, that's all what I just had shared a few moments ago. But he continues, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
And if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The Spirit speaks to our hearts, assuring us that we are indeed God's children. Even though we feel like we're wayward, he reminds us of the truth. And that gets back to what I said before the sermon about the difference between fact and feeling. It's important to cling to these truths that we are children of God. Reminds us that there is not a corner of the world that we could go to. There is not an activity that we could engage in that nullifies this adoption by God. You cannot out-sin God's grace. And the Spirit testifies to us that we are secure as God's children. And there's nothing we can do to change that. The Holy Spirit reminds us of that justification before God. But one of the adages that we have here at City Reach is that God loves you just as you are, but he loves, he loves you too much to let you stay that way. Right? The Holy Spirit gives us a reminder that God loves us as we are, but the second step, step two in this process, is that the Holy Spirit provides the conviction and the power to experience the change that God wants to see in our lives. Right? This is what I called sanctification earlier. Literally what that word means is the process by which we become more holy. Because there is a way of life that God says is good. And unfortunately, we try to boil that down, that way of life down to a checklist, right? Like if I can just read my Bible every day, if I can just stop watching R-rated movies or bite my tongue, right? Keep from swearing, whatever it might be. Whatever, you know, things that you put on your to-do or checklist, right? If you do them, then I'm living the way that God wants me to live. Right? We're really good at putting structure around what this looks like. And unfortunately, I, you know, if you're looking for like a clear cut, here's points one, two, three, and four, you're not going to get it this morning because I don't think the Bible teaches that. The Bible doesn't give us a formula for growing in holiness. Right? We try to make our checklists into a new law, but that's not, the truth is it's not done by our own effort. It's about what the Spirit is trying to cultivate inside of us. God doesn't say here, like, God isn't like, hey, here's a manual, right? The Bible's not a manual for avoiding sin in your life. Instead, what he teaches us, what he reveals to us in the Bible is these are the characteristics that should be present in your life. Classic's description of this is uh, Galatians 5, called the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says this, verses 22 to 23, but the fruit of the Spirit, so here's nine things. These are the things that ought to be known, visible in your life. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Notice it says is, right? Singular, not are. You should have all this, this, this cluster of grapes. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He says against such things there is no law. And I, I know there's a lot of good people out there that look like they're minding their P's and Q's. They give all appearance of being a good person. But you know what? They have a tendency to be some of the cruelest people that I've met. They're not very loving. Or, you know, maybe there's someone who hasn't cussed in years, but they've got no self-control with how they spend their money or their eating habits. Right? The Holy Spirit provides a catalyst for us. We want to be integrated people having all of these things in our lives, not just like, I feel bad because I keep going back to these same passages, but they're so, they've been so influential to me. The Pharisees were those ones who weren't living by the fruit of the Spirit. 
They were trying to do it by their effort. And what does Jesus call them? Whitewashed tombs. You look really, really fancy. You got this great mausoleum that's beautiful, but in the inside, all you got is decay. The Holy Spirit wants to cultivate life inside of us. That's not just about following these rules or following these checklists, but it's being an integrated people of what it means to follow, follow the Lord. The Holy Spirit is that catalyst for seeing that fruit in our lives. And going back to my Presbyterian church growing up, right? a lot of Presbyterian churches, there's a part of me that's Presbyterian. I've got some Reformed background in me. But Presbyterians, they know their theology. Right? They, they got it up here, but oftentimes they don't have it down here. Again, I'm, I'm not saying everybody's like that, but I've encountered a lot that don't have it here. And I think part of the reason they don't have it here is because they ignore the Holy Spirit. Right? If you have an apple tree in your backyard, you can't make it produce apples. You can water it, you can cultivate it, you can try to make the conditions ideal for growth. And, and we should do that. There are steps that we should do where we participate in that process. But only God brings the growth. Right? So too, these are the fruit of the Spirit, not the labors of the flesh. We need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, listening to what he is trying to teach us to see where that growth might come in our lives. So that's, that's kind of that personal side where the Holy Spirit assists us in understanding our justification and sanctification. But the other avenue that the Holy Spirit helps us on this journey with God is because faith is not done in isolation. Faith is not just about my personal relationship with God. I am part of a broader community. And the Holy Spirit gives each of us the necessary tools to, be, to do our part in that group. Right? The Holy Spirit gives us tools, gifts, that enable us to do the work that he has called us to with greater excellence than we could have just done on our own. And there's a number of passages. Uh, there's a passage in Ephesians and Romans. I'm, I'm going to read briefly. I'm not going to read it. 1 Corinthians 12, you can read it on your own. There's a whole number of lists there. The, these gifts of the Spirit. And, and that passage that I'm just kind of glossing over this morning, I apologize for that, but, but for the sake of time, it tells us two things. It tells us that the source of these gifts is the same Spirit. Right? There are a diverse gifts that are, that, that are given to us. Right? If, if, if I just kind of skim through us, right? there's faith and prophecy and healing and utterance of wisdom and tongues and interpretation. And you know, the list goes on in other places too. Teaching, administration, all these things. So there's a vast diversity of gifts. But it's one spirit which empowers those who have them. And so this provides unity amongst the body. We shouldn't be jealous of someone else's gift because God's given us a gift too. Right? The passage continues describing a human body that, you know, like the, the ear shouldn't be jealous of the eye and the finger shouldn't be jealous of the elbow. Uh, again, it's, I'm paraphrasing a bit. Uh, but the idea is they're all important. They are all essential in some way for the full integration, the full, um, you know, fulfillment of the body. But it all stems from one place, the Holy Spirit. But the second thing that the passage says is that these, these gifts have a purpose. They are there to build up other believers in Jesus Christ, right? The church. Nothing that we receive from God is meant to be hoarded. The, the, the gifts aren't just there for your own, you know, to steward your own personal faith in God. Right? We do talk about the Spirit assuring us, giving us that assurance individually, but here we must focus on the corporate nature of the gifts. You were blessed by God with a purpose. 
So let's look about what this looks like, kind of let that rubber meet the road a little bit in our lives. What does the work of the, the Holy Spirit of sanctification and equipping look like in our lives? The Holy Spirit guides us into faithfulness, right? He wants us to steward and cultivate those fruits of the Spirit that I read from Galatians earlier. He wants us to be a people of love and joy and peace and self-control, but only if we'll open ourselves up to him. And this is a difficult process. As I said a, mo- a few moments ago, there is no formula, right? If I could give you a formula, we could just do what it said, dust our hands and be done for the day. But the Holy Spirit isn't a set of rules, but a dynamic presence in our lives. The truth is there's plenty of brokenness for us to go around, plenty of imperfections in our lives. My priority list for how, you know, the order in which things are cleaned up in my life might be different than what God has in store for me. Or maybe the priority list that I have for my neighbor of what he or she gets cleaned up in their life might be a different priority list from what God has for them. There's a pastor of mine uh, that I used to sit under named Bruce Bickle, and he used to say, I'm not your Holy Spirit. As a pastor, it's not my responsibility, or it's my responsibility to, to do my best to help you stay connected, to remind you of truths, to help you to, to be connected to that lifeline of the Holy Spirit. But what I cannot do is legislate that growth. If I try to legislate that growth and make a bunch of rules, then we're, we're no better off than the Pharisees. I can constantly point you to what the scriptures say and explain a vision of what God desires in your life, but I can't force you to get there. Old adage, right? Leading the horse to water, can't make it drink. I, I, that's, that's not my job. That's the Holy Spirit's job in our lives. And it, this is tough because it's not concrete. It's not something we can mark off our checklist and visually see our pro- progress. Instead, what I would encourage you to do each and every morning when you wake up is to ask for wisdom from the Holy Spirit. Ask him where he might be trying to do some work in your life. And be sensitive to those opportunities that he provides for you to grow and showcase what you've learned. And if, he, if he's leaning you into to learning what it means to be patient or content, he's probably going to give you some situations where you've got to flex that muscle a little bit. So be aware of the Holy Spirit and what he might be trying to do. But as I said many times this morning, I'm almost done, I promise. I'm sorry taking you a little long. The Holy Spirit's not just here for your own benefit. Right? Not, it's not, we're not individualistic here. He's not just growing you to be holy for yourself, but for the benefit of your neighbors, for the benefit of the church. He equips and empowers you to do ministry for a purpose. So I would also encourage you to take some time when you wake up in that morning, to, to dwell on the Holy Spirit. Ask him, what is it, how is it that you have wired me? If you don't know what your spiritual gift is, we all have at least one, probably more places where the Holy Spirit has uniquely gifted us to, to do ministry, to carry this mantle together the church. Right? Spend some time in prayer asking God to reveal it to you. How has he uniquely shaped you for the benefit of others? Right, there's, there's, I mean, if you want to use uh, uh, Google, there's lots of spiritual gift inventories you can find online. They're not perfect, but they can at least be a starting place for you. Spend some time on Google, you get it. But once you've gotten some direction on what that gift is, I'd encourage you to next ask the Holy Spirit to give you some guidance of where you can use that gift. Right? Find a way to get involved in your community. Find a way to get involved here at City Reach in line with your gifts. 
In the New Testament, there was no such thing as a spectator Christian. I shared last week about, you know, I was a mediocre soccer player in high school. I loved the game, but I wasn't great at it. And so as a, re- as a result, I was mostly a bench warmer on my high school team. There is no bench for the church. Each member has something to contribute. And we need to have space and opportunity to utilize those gifts. Now, I have to confess here in the midst of COVID, we've been dialed pretty far back as a church. We've been in survival mode for the last year and a half. I know many of you have been as well. But we are, we're at a place right now, I'm, I'm really excited about it, that we're starting to, to, to preparing to, to restart some of these ministry teams. So I'd encourage you, start thinking of a place, thinking about what you'd like to do. And over the next few months, we can find a place for you to, to serve, to get involved in that. Right? Like, are you extroverted by, this is just a prime to pump. You extroverted by nature, do you enjoy people? You can join our connections team. Right? Helping guests feel welcome. You know, some people have the gift of hospitality, of trying to provide that hospitable environment for, for folks. Maybe you love working with kids. You, know, you can volunteer in the nursery. You can help steward the faith of, of the next generation of the church. You can, you, you can uh, you know, if you're like an introvert, you're like, I just don't want to be around people. That's fine. You don't have to volunteer. You don't have to greet at people at the door. You could spend your time making this place look beautiful. Right? Whether it be cleaning or, you know, we probably could use some fresh coats of paints on some of our walls. Right? There's always something can do. May, maybe your gift is contentment and generosity, and so, you know, you can commit to tithing your income to provide resources to the Lord and see his kingdom made manifest here. You could teach and mentor others. You can be bold in sharing your faith. You can be a prayer warrior, praying for physical and spiritual healing in people's lives, right? There's, there is such a diverse set of gifts that the Holy Spirit provides. But I want to encourage you, don't just get stuck sitting on your hands. Allow the Holy Spirit to propel you in service to others in this place in the broader community. We started this morning by affirming the personhood and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Allow him to shape you, to mold you into the type of person that God desires. Seek out his gifts to be a blessing to your community and to your church because the Holy Spirit applies the work of the Father and the Son of salvation into our lives. He is the glue that holds our faith and our church communities together. May we be more aware of his presence. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for sending your spirit, Jesus, that in your departure you sent the spirit to be a helper for us, that reinforcement in battle, that if he wasn't here, we'd be lost. Continue to guide us in the power of your grace to living lives that are more holy, that are more in touch and in line with how you would have us live, that we would lean into that salvation that is already true and one for us in Jesus. But Lord, keep us from being individualistic. Help us see the interdependence of your body and our need for one another. May we be motivated motivated to live lives for you, to love you with our whole heart, to love our neighbor as ourselves. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.